about history from a whole new context. Welcome to Podtextualizing the Past. Hi, I'm Sue Stanfield with the History Department at the University of Texas at El Paso. Today I'm interviewing Melissa Trejo, a graduate student in history at UTEP. Melissa's research examines the role of women as warriors in folklore, reality, and historical memory, and examining a double standard faced by female soldiers who are both reviled or revered for their military service. Melissa focuses on uh, women in the U.S.-Mexico War. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you for having me. So I guess to start out, um, women who step outside of the traditional gender roles prescribed by society tend to be either celebrated, um, particularly immediately, for their bravery or attacked for their aggression. And this was uh, true in like New England history. They have uh, uh, narratives of women who have been taken by Native Americans. And the ones that fought back were celebrated initially. And then a generation later is like, oh, they're they're aggressive and bloody and and bad. And it seems like this fits across cultures and regions and time periods. And I know when we uh, talk about um, the woman who served as a translator for Cortez when he was in Mexico, uh, she also kind of faced this dual portrayal over time. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about her. Yes, um, Lama Lin- her name's Lama Linche, and uh, she was the Aztec daughter of a leader. So after her father's death, um, her mother sold her into slavery, and then she was resold again to the Spaniards. Um, unfortunately, in that little part, there's so much, how should I like explain? Like, it's, there's so much, um, so many different stories and so many different versions of that story. So I guess I would say like my favorite one, I guess, that just makes a little bit more sense to me would be that she was sold to the Mayas and then to the Mayans and then from the, the Mayans then sold her to the Spaniards. But there's but if you look at look at it historically, it doesn't make sense. So so um, but there, like I said, there's different variations of that. But um, but because of her privileged um, educational um, upbringing, she was very intelligent and she picked up on languages um, very well, especially while she was in captivity. Um, she evidently became Hernan Cortes uh, translator. And pretty much the legend has it that in order to get revenge on her people for her, you know, her being sold into slavery, that she tricked uh, Montezuma, the ninth ruler of the Aztec people, into thinking that Cortes was the Aztec god um, Quetzalcoatl. I don't know if I'm saying that right. I think I said it right. And he's the feathered serpent god of rain and wind, which eventually led to Montezuma's downfall. Um, Cortes was able to bring down the, the Aztec Empire because of La Malinche's help. So um, I guess th- that is where she ends up, depending on who you ask, would, de- would depend on the story that you get. She's either a traitor that traded, you know, that, I mean, she was either a traitor who pretty much uh, went against her people or she stood up for her rights as, you know, a woman and being pretty much, you know, sold into slavery and saying, I'm not going to put up with this. And, you know, just went after the people who, who did these bad things to her. 
Um, also, there's um, La Malinche ended up having a child with Cortes, who is considered to be the the first mestizo. So, you know, like like I was saying, it just depends on who you you ask. She's either a traitor or or a survivor. Um, and the name La Malinche, or the actual, I guess, name now, it's seen as a derogatory form for for a woman. So if if a someone in Mexican culture says you're a Malinche, they're pretty much insult they're insulting you, saying that you know you're this horrible trait, you know, traitorous snake, or you're um, a whore, like for lack of better words, um, or you're either la virgen, so or you're a saint, you're very saint-like, you're very virtuous, you're very, so it's like in Mexican culture, to me, it just seems that it's either you're one or the other. There's no in-between. Yeah. When it comes There's to this that. Uh, bifurcation, like you can't just be doing the best you can to to carry on. Instead, you're, you know, a sinner or a saint. You know, it's right, right. one or the other. I know the textbook that um, I use for the 1301 class, the very first chapter uh, begins with a little anecdote about her, but it's so mm-hmm. bland and, uh, and she, she doesn't seem to have the agency of, you know, here's someone that, that takes, that takes control is just such a, a descriptive story as opposed to to giving us a real feel about her. And uh, I think that's often true in how we talk about women in, in situations like this, right? That um, we tend to, to judge them as extraordinary, whether it's brave or, or awful, but, you know, don't think about them as, as real actors just doing their thing. Um, I know from, from your research that I've looked at, that you you do uh, some examinations of Mesoamerican goddesses, and so mm-hmm. kind of having this tradition of how we think of of women and and power. And I was wondering if you could tell us about a few of them, and maybe even how they're how those stories shape actual women, you know, in the past. And um, pretty much what I found out through my research is in Mesoamerican societies, um, women were just not only mothers and care- caretakers, but they were also property owners, and which passed through the female lines instead of the male lines. So inheritance, property, any tribal defense, crops um, were, pa- were passed from mothers to daughters. So, I mean, I found that to be very interesting given that, you know, in in American history, a lot of the times when some woman got divorced, it was like, you know, you're stuck. You can't really do much unless you had like some really good, you know, extraordinary circumstances where you were able to to um, own land or own property. So I thought that was really interesting that that's something that was different than what I guess we're no- normally taught in in history. They were also seen as um as warriors. So one of the Aztec goddesses got, got well not Aztec was it Aztec? I can't remember. Well, one of the goddesses. Her name is um, Itzpapalol, and she was one of these deities that had this double persona of femininity and also war. You know, um, she she was also known as, you know, she had like men, there's many variations of of all these goddesses because they're, they weren't just focused in like, let's say, just Aztec or Mayan or, Mis- or 
or um, Mystex or Chichimeca. They were, it was almost like they were all combined. Like it was the same goddess, different name. So that's what made it so difficult when I was doing my research to really, I guess, separate everything. But the closest thing that I was able to come to that I thought was was very interesting was um, she was also known as like a obsidian butterfly. And she was represented mm-hmm. as, as either a butterfly or a bat. So it just depend on, like I said, on which legend you're, you're hearing about. She also had a human skull on her face and talons and claws on her hands or feet. So she didn't have just regular hands or feet. They were talons or, or claws, depending on on who, on the artist that was sculpting her. Um, she was also seen as, um, she was also seen like like the goddess of the underworld. Like, yeah, like almost like a goddess of, of the underworld, you know, and, but she was a Chichimec goddess. So that's what makes it even more difficult that they're like, like I was saying earlier is it's, it's really hard to dis- to like separate from which um, tribe we're talking about or from which, a century we're talking about because it seems to all of it to just mesh together and it would have to I would have to do I think years and years of research to really separate it and then break it down it's just what what I was able to come across was 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 this so that she's a chichimec goddess a female warrior uh, she represented hunting in war and her legend is um it, oh here's another thing another thing that I found really interesting is a lot of these women they had men as the center of their stories, you know, and as this, with this one was um, this man, well, these two hunters, they saw a two headed deer and they were trying to chase it. They were trying to pretty much kill it to, you know, take it back home with them. And um, they weren't able to, 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 you know, kill it. So um, this two-headed deer ends up appearing before them and it turns into two women. So this two-headed deer ends up becoming two women and one tells the hunter to drink blood and he does, they copulate. And that, that, um, that woman ends up eating that hunter. The second one, which is the one that eats Papalo'on, tries to, to do the same thing with, um, he, he, she, she fails at persuading him. And he ends up running away. Like he, he ends up jumping into the fire, running away from her. So she jumps into the fire as well. And while they're trying to, while she's trying to find this hunter, she's almost killed and she ends up painting her face, um, white. That's why she's represented as this white face, um, because of the loss of the hunter that she was after. So the gods cast fire onto her and she bursts into five stone frag- fragments. And one of those stones is white in color that ends up at the hands of another Aztec god. Um, well, not Aztec, well, another god. I just, I say Aztec more because that's where I'm more, I'm more familiar with, with Aztec gods than I am with the other uh, tribes. But um, they end up at the hands of, I don't know if I'm going to say this right, but Miss Mixcoa, um, who ends up using that knife that from her as, as um, a knife of sacrifice. Um, so he uses a part of her to sacrifice. So they, again, it's, it's really, it's like I said, it's really interesting that they're seen as these, you know, kind of evil beings, but yet they're also seen as these warriors. So I don't know, even in, I guess you could say in Mesoamerican, whoever's telling the story, it just can be seen as that. And then um, another uh, goddess, uh, she, you know, she wasn't really, I guess she was a real person. 
according to these legends. Because again, I couldn't really find concrete evidence that she was, you know, a hundred percent live, unwell person. <laughs> um, a mystic goddess, uh, Lady Six Monkey. Um, she was born of, you know, flesh and blood. Uh, her legend begins when she's set to marry a man named Eight Deer, but after advice from an oracle, she chose, uh, who tells her to choose her own destiny, she marries another man by the name of Eleven Wind. And her and her husband, Eleven Wind, end up being successful rulers and show no mercy to people that would insult her or to um, just anybody who would just be real insulting towards her, um, I guess, because of what, what she did. And um, so she fought for her place to rule as her father's heir. And she was a very powerful political leader. But eventually she was taken captive by Eight Deer, the man that she originally said, I'm not, you know, that was, she was originally supposed to marry, but decided not to marry. And she was executed along with, with her husband um, afterwards. Um, I know there's codices that show this story, mm-hmm. I, but again, I, I feel like I didn't have enough I would have to do years and years of research to really go in depth into this story to see how how true if it, she really was just a a mystic goddess or if she really was a real person. But from the looks of it, it looks like I think they're both intertwined. I think she was probably a real person, but she was like mixed up with like like the legend of an actual goddess is what I'm starting to to see might have happened with with her. So did women um, look to these goddesses as inspiration or are they cautionary tales of, of how you should behave? I, do they enter into how women see themselves, you know, the women that decided to become soldiers or warriors, you know, in, in real life battles? Um, again, I think it would just depend on who you would ask. Like if you would ask me as a kid, I would probably say, yeah, this is how it should be. I need to, you know, push the limits and do this and do that because that's just the child that I was, you know. But if you were to ask another kid, oh, no, this is like a tell of caution. You're not supposed to go against anything. So I guess it just all comes down to, um, I guess, the person, like the personality of of a person, you know, because even, even in Mexican culture, you know, we're told that, we have to be obedient. We have to not, you know, talk back. If a man or an adult talks to you, you're supposed to say, yes, ma'am, no, 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 sir. Yes, ma'am. You know, <laughs> um, and you can't really be, you, you cannot be disrespectful, you know, and it, it's not really, you know, and if you go against that, you end up being labeled as like a problem child, a black mm-hmm. sheep, uh, you know, so I guess, like I said, it's it's almost the same thing. It's just I feel that in Mexican culture, it tends to be more harsh just because, you know, it's it's I mean, like I said, I grew up in Mexican culture. I'm Mexican and it's I feel like it was a lot harsher, like the standards, like you have to follow the rules, you know, or else you were just you no, know, no good. You're not supposed to do that. So, um, but I do think that because of these stories, like if you grew up listening to these stories, I can see where, you know, where some people would see it as, or some women would see it as, you know, this is something that we should be doing. If something happens or there's an injustice somewhere, or there is, there is um, something that we need to be fighting for, you end up going on the front lines, male or female, I guess, is how I would, I would interpret it, I guess, in that in that sense. Um, uh, but I wish I, 
I wish I would know. I wish there was more um, history, more documentation when it comes to this part of history, because it was very difficult to find anything about it, like anything at all. Right. Well, <laughs> there you write about um, women, um, Mexican women in the U.S.-Mexico War. And I was curious, how prevalent was uh, female participation? You know, because I, I started thinking when I was trying to write these questions, mm-hmm. um, you know, it makes sense because the majority of the, almost every bit of the war takes place on Mexican soil. So when, when war comes to you, you're more likely to, to respond just as, you know, U.S. women, both North and South during the American Civil War, you know, become more active participants than, than certainly women, U.S. women in the U.S.-Mexico War. And I'm just curious, like, what kind of things did uh, women do when they were helping in the war? It's very similar to what American women did. But I feel like the only difference was that they would really, they would uproot their families and go with the soldiers and go with their, with the fathers, with the husbands, the lovers, you know, it just depended on the relationship they had. Um, and they would take their kids with them. Uh, they would take care of the camp. Um, they were nurses. They were cooks, laundresses. Um, I did read that there was even some women who became prostitutes to American soldiers. So it just, it just really, um, I guess I would say like the only difference is, is that they were, they were real because of that, you, you have to, you know, honor your husband, honor your dad. It's like, if I felt like it was almost like their duty to get uproot everything to go with, with their, with their husbands or their, or their fathers. Um, but I mean, not everyone, not all the women did that though. You know, some of them did stay home because their family was at home and none of, none of them went to war. Um, so it just, <clears throat> uh, I, I guess for me, like the most interesting part was that some women decided to become, uh, prostitutes to the American soldiers. And I don't think it was because I think a lot of the women that did become, uh, prostitutes, I, I don't think it was because they just wanted that type of life, I right. think it's because it's a way of survival, you know, and I think that's something that needs to be like, clarified with that, like with, with that part of history is that a lot of them needed, you know, they, they were either divorced or they, they were by their, you know, by themselves, they had no family. So they, they ended up becoming, you know, prostitutes so that they could, you know, have some sort of living for themselves, some means of support, a way of supporting mm-hmm. themselves. Yeah, I mean, I think few women necessarily would make that as a choice, particularly at a violent time like wartime, you know, that often you just do what you do to survive and uh, and to get through. Um, so I'm wondering, are there, are there specific women that you've researched or know about that actually served as soldiers instead of as, you know, nurses and cooks and, and camp followers? I was able to find one specifically. Her name is Maria de Jesus Amades, or um, there's another name that she also went by, which is uh, Maria de Jesus Los Amantes. And she was like a Mexican Joan of Arc. She dressed up as a man to fight in the Battle of Monterrey. Uh, she led her own battalion into the war. Uh, many were killed um, in the battle. And, it, and again, legend has it 
that she disappeared. She either disappeared completely, no one heard from her again, or she hung up her uniform and just returned to her family very quietly, very just, you know, she didn't want any, I guess, um, anyone to know who she was. And uh, with hers, though, I, I read different different stories on her. Like when she was the, I want to say the daughter of a mayor of a city. I can't remember the name of the city right now, like offhand, but she, you know, that's one part. And the other part um, or the other part of the legend is that she just, she was just a regular girl, grew up in a in regular town in Mexico and just ended up, you know, saying, you know what, I want to fight for my country, but at the time women couldn't serve. So she was just, I'm just going to go and you know, dress up as a man and see what, what I can get myself into or not. <laughs> and that, I mean, that's pretty much, and, and again, I can't tell what is, what is the truth. And I can't tell what is more of the legend. Cause it's so, like I said, it's so mixed up, almost oh, really? like, a you know, it's so mixed up in there. It's, it's so, it's intertwined and it's so hard to really, to really separate the two. I mean, are there records? Like I know for um, women that fought as soldiers in the U.S. Civil War and the the American Revolution, you know, eventually sometimes you can see things either in their obituaries or they got pensions for their their time uh, fighting. But are there similar records in Mexico that you could you could get a more direct story if you had access to them? I found one and it was from a book that I, that I was able to read. Um, It was, uh, I think it was a a general knew she was a woman and was moved by her words. And that's the reason why he allowed her to serve. And he wrote about it and in his journal. So a, a lot of it's coming from soldiers journals so it's not really, you know, like, like which is probably more reliable in some ways than a government right. that's going to have an interest in in not recognizing female participation. Mm-hmm. Um, that's just fascinating that that it appears in you know journals these descriptions. Yes. A lot of um, the women I read about, it was only in journals or soldiers that were um, deserters. Or just soldiers in general, they would just write about it. But again, I don't know if it was very, if it was true, or they just wanted to, to make. I don't want to say make the story up, but embellish the story that was just mm-hmm. very, um, that was just not as interesting as it. They're making it sound. It was. It was just real hard to, to distinguish which one was which. Like, what was the truth? What wasn't the truth? What, what was more embellished? <clears throat> And that's still really important, even if it's not the truth, to kind of get the idea of historical memory. But you still need to be able to to distinguish, you know, how did memory change over time? So you've got a really tough topic to research there. Um, Did descriptions tend to um, describe women as as feminine, but somehow because of love of country or something else? stepping outside those bounds or were they not presented as kind of constrained by gender roles? With, uh, the only thing I was able to find was with the American soldiers on how they viewed the women during this time. Um, the American soldiers saw 
some of the women as very, they were beautiful. They were gorgeous and they couldn't believe they were showing their ankles and it was scandalous. You know, they were just, you know, exotic as some of them were, were, you know, they, what was written in one of the books. Um, But then on the contrary, the women that would fight, they were seen as more masculine and ugly and just, you know, like these beasts. And it was, it, it, and I found it really interesting because it's like, well, why is it that if a woman is not really, you know, wearing a dress and isn't doing what a man, well, isn't doing what, what a man tells her to do, that she's seen as this, as this way. Um, that was pretty much the only record that I was able to find just because during the research, I couldn't really travel because my, my goal was to try to at least maybe go to um, Juarez to see if maybe there was something somewhere at the university. But then COVID happened, I couldn't leave. I couldn't do anything. So I kind right. of restricted my, my research in that to really, you know, dig a little deeper. <laughs> but um, I guess that's how they were seen. But, uh, but funny that you, that you bring up that, you know, how men saw, saw women. Um, There's another lady by the name of Maria Josefa Sozaya. And she was described as, you know, this beautiful young woman who would, would help with, you know, giving ammunitions to Mexican soldiers, you know, and this was, I think it was an, an American soldier who described her this way. But then another, like other people would see her as, you know, depicted her as an older woman who led soldiers into combat and ended up dying. But in reality, it wasn't really her it was again it's like this whole embellishment like i think this i really believe that all of this happened i I found a a good story on zozaya and for her it was more in depth than all the other women i was able to you know come across but she didn't die in battle she lived a long life in that time so it it, it's just it's so complicated (laughs) like it's so so complicated i realize that these these histories are extremely complicated and and having but i also don't i also believe that they should not be discredited because it doesn't mean that just because we can't put a a face to the name or a name to the you know like yeah a face to the name that it doesn't mean that you know it didn't happen i think it did happen just it wasn't documented the way that we would love for it to be documented now and i mean that is you know personally as someone that studies women's history um pre 20th century, that's always the case because, you know, there, there are not a lot of documents women leave their names on because they can't contract their own labor. They can't, you know, until towards the end of the 19th century, in most places, they can't own property if they're married, you know, all of these restrictions. So you don't have those and uh, you don't have birth certificates outside of the church you know, until beginning of the 20th century in the U.S. Uh, And then on the other hand, what do we save? Well, in the 19th century, who wants to save something about a women's club, right? You save it about the important businessman in Philadelphia. And so it does take so much more digging, but at least I find it so much more rewarding every time you find, you can find someone and track them. So, well, um, One of the things I ask everyone that I interview is to kind of, um, you know, to look at these people in a 21st century light. And so um, imagine that they have an Instagram account and what kind of hashtags would they use um, 
to identify themselves. So I was thinking maybe um, the first female soldier you mentioned, what might she have used for hashtags? I would say maybe for loving country. Um, that That's like a first one that kind of just pops in my head. Um, uh, let me see. I'm trying to think of like so many different things, but it's, it's so hard just because I don't use hashtags myself. Right. So <laughs> it makes it even more difficult to like, I mean, what would you put? Um, maybe, um, like Viva La Raza would be another one. So, uh, let me see. Oh, like, I mean, th- those are pretty much the only two I can really just, they work. just offhand. <laughs> like, yeah, just right offhand, especially for, for, you know, the female soldier, um, mm-hmm. I, that would be the only two that I can really. Like, so what about of. one of the goddesses, if they had their, their Instagram account, how might they have uh, portrayed themselves? Mm. I know when I was rereading your research, um, I mean, focusing on kind of the more violent things came to my mind. I was like, well, no one wants to be remembered for that, but. Right. You know, and the only thing that comes to mind is like, the violence of everything. I, yeah. You know, I kind of see them more like like these guerrilla warriors, you know, where they cover their faces and mm-hmm. and you know they're they're like these fighters of like injustices that are happening. Like that's the first thing that came to my mind. Yeah, you know. But then again, I think it just it has a lot to do with you know my own activism and what I I'm involved in. I think that's that's why I I was so. I guess, so just attracted to these stories was because of that. Cause that's how I, I saw them as I saw them as, as version of, of going against, you know, just, just against the, Oh, what's that like word? I can't think of the word right now. Um, they're, they're just going against what's considered normal for women to do. Right. You know, and that's, and that's what I, and that's really what really grabbed my attention on it was, was that part. So I would say something that had to do with um, social justice. Well, I really appreciate talking to you. Um, I think it's interesting. Um, the most, the last few interviews we've done have focused on on women a bit more, and uh, I, I'm so excited to have a chance to talk to you and find out about women um, in, in the borderland in Mexico. Uh, you know, we talk so much about U.S. women and and don't look at North America as a whole. So I appreciate your time so much. Oh, no, well, thank you for, for asking me and for having me. I was actually really flattered. I was like, really? You're interested? Like, not many people are. <laughs> so it's great. It's great. I had the people, um, I had the feeling people are going to really enjoy hearing, um, you know, a story that they don't hear all the time. So thanks a bunch and uh, have a good day. Stay healthy and happy. Yes, thank you. Likewise. Podtextualizing the Past was created by Susan Stanfield, Assistant Professor of History at the University of Texas at El Paso, and is produced by Adrian Mesa from UTEP's Creative Studios.